The Tour is part of the Osiris Podcast Network, connecting you to music, artists, and culture. Hear it all at osirispod.com. This episode is brought to you by Canova Communications, leaders in creating multi-platform content and turning casual followers into devoted fans. Visit canovacommunications.com. Any musician who's been around long enough has had to confront those wild expectations of success. After being in an instrumental band for years and always hearing from people like, oh, well, the real money's in vocal music. <laughs> so I had this weird expectation, like, oh, now we have songs with lyrics and things are just gonna be instantly successful. And, and of course, it wasn't. Hi, and welcome to the tour. I'm your host, Ted Canova. Chris Wood calls the Wood Brothers journey a slow rise to the middle. As I sit on the edge of this, never made it. The Wood Brothers grew up in the same house, but went off on separate musical paths. Oliver off to Georgia and found R&B with the group King Johnson. I wish I could have. Chris was drawn to New York City jazz and formed Modesky, Martin & Wood, whose cutting-edge sound has carved out 27 albums in 22 years. Chris and Oliver each put in their 10,000 hours, far apart and rarely crossing paths, and then coming back together, rekindling that kinship and blending styles to form the Wood Brothers. Hallelujah. Well, I just woke up from a dream so far away. In 2006, they released their first album, Ways Not to Lose. Don't you try to hold my world up. Don't you try to hold my world Two years later, their songwriting reached new depths with the album Loaded. Right on a big jet plane, flying into your sleep, cause you missed those loving arms. Then the Wood Brothers paid tribute to Americana with an eight-song collection of covers from the Allman Brothers to the godmother of rock and roll, Sister Rosetta Tharp. Up above my head, up above my head. Along the way, they became a trio with the multi-talented John O'Ricks on drums, keyboards, and the shitar. In 2013, they started appearing on the record charts with The Muse, filled with harmonies, poetry, and grit. If you get broken, what you ought to do is sing. Sing about your trouble, it just might. Two years later, they turned to Desire and Salvation with the warm and rowdy album, Paradise. They took a different approach on their latest, One Drop of Truth, recording songs and letting them simmer and using different engineers from different Nashville studios. This is it, and only this, and all the things I think I miss. I sat down with Chris just before soundcheck at Irving Plaza in New York City. He shared his second life, both as a musician and as a patient who needed life-saving surgery. How he learned to love the upright bass and how music should leave us hanging with unanswered questions. Chris, it's not often that I get to speak to a musician who is just hours away from their next album dropping. How are you feeling? Uh, we're feeling great. You know, normally when an artist makes a record, you try to write all this material, have it finished, and you try to record all this stuff all at once. And what we allowed ourselves to do on this, this record, especially because we self-produced it, we were able to record something, forget about it for two months, and then listen back, and then either we loved it or we'd do it again. Or It just had that kind of flexibility and time allowed us to have a lot more fun and creativity in the studio. Let's talk about that changing industry a little bit. I was talking to a friend the other day, and I'm not sure 
sure if musicians need to cut full albums anymore with 12 cuts on it. Because of the changing music industry, you really just need a couple of cuts and then you need to tour against it. Well, I think, you know, the times have changed very quickly, but it's still, it's not that the old model suddenly goes away. But in some ways, it's kind of like going back in time. Like what I think of is Ray Charles, you know. In the earlier days, he didn't make complete records. The band would be touring. They come up with some new song. It's going well. The audience is loving it. They call up Atlantic and Ahmed Erdogan and those guys, and they're like, hey, we've got this great new cut. Like, Can we come in and, and record it? And then they just go in and they record that one song because it's hot on the road. And so they know it's going to be good. They've been rehearsing it. It's been crowd tested. And they go in there, and of course they, they do two takes probably, and it sounds amazing. It used to be sort of a one-song-at-a-time approach to recording music, and you had singles and maybe a B-side. So in a strange way, yeah, maybe we'll get back to that, where bands will just release material as they write it. It doesn't have to be a complete work. Let's talk about the family dynamic. Do you know just how lucky it is that you are working with your brother? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I pinch myself. Not just that I'm working with my brother, but, you know, Modesky, Martin, and Wood had been together for 26 years, and Wood Brothers now are in their 12th year, so I kind of feel like I've had the second life as a musician in a completely different kind of band setting, different genre, songwriting, lyrics, and something I always loved as a kid, so the fact that I ended up in an instrumental band for so long was partly because of my love for jazz and partly just a fluke I mean it just happened I don't you know I was just responding to the scene I was in and the people I was meeting and it became this little unit and we toured and it became what it was you know but uh to be doing this with my brother is really special it's kind of interesting that you grew up loving jazz and your brother grew to going south and got into the southern roots songs what drew you to jazz in Boulder Colorado well I think early early on I think I was trying to learn how to play the clarinet. You know, I was learning some classical stuff, but someone played me some Benny Goodman or some Pete Fountain, and then I just was drawn to it. And then once I got into bass, you know, of course there was Jocko, Pastorius, was somebody turned me on to him, and Marcus Miller, and then eventually Mingus and Paul Chambers and all these guys, you know. And I had great teachers. I lucked out, and I had an amazing young teacher who took me under his wing, and then in, in high school I had a great jazz band teacher who was also a professional bass player, jazz bass player in the Denver scene. So it had a lot to do with my mentors too, the people that were kind of influencing me and guiding me. But my brother, you know, he, he was older than me and he, we were into 60s rock and roll. But then when he got into playing guitar, we traced that back and started buying all these blues records. So huge influence was like Jimmy Reed, Lightning Hopkins, Muddy Waters, all those guys, you know. And those records stuck with me. With the Wood Brothers, it's kind of like going full circle to those earlier days and those earlier influences. Before you went off to school, you and all Oliver had a four-track player in your bedroom, and you messed around with some tunes that you wrote. Any of those tunes that you wrote back then influencing any of the music that you're doing today? Uh, no. <laughs> I think we've come a long way since then. But it was fun to, I think, having that experience with my brother back then, by the time we finally started talking and realizing in our adult lives that we have the same job, and, you know, I think it's those memories of working together as kids that probably made, made us realize, like, wow, we should try something together. Oliver was passionate about the guitar. When did you get into the stand-up bass? Because that's just not something you take on the school bus every day with you. Yeah, well, the weird thing is he actually got was into electric bass first. He thought that would be something fun to get into. So one Christmas, he, he got an electric bass, 
he played it for a while and um, realized that he really was interested in guitar. So the bass was lying around, and he taught me a few things, and then I just took it from there. And then my first teacher, who's this great hotshot young teacher in the Denver area, was also a great jazz and upright bass player. And he, he kind of convinced me. He's like, you have to try playing this instrument. You have to do it. And I was reluctant because, I don't know, just didn't seem cool. But finally, you know, it grew on me, and I learned to love it. Learn to love it. Your brother was in Atlanta and Georgia doing the blues inflected R&B. You went to Boston for school and then you went to New York City. What did New York City do to inform you about jazz? Well, that was school. That was really school. I went briefly to the New England Conservatory because there were some great teachers there. Like Dave Holland, drummer Bob Moses, amazing jazz piano player Jerry Allen, George Garzon, incredible tenor player. They all were my private teachers. So that was an amazing but short period. But the real lesson was coming to New York City, and that's you know where I'd met John Medeski, and we moved to New York and started playing these like week-long gigs at the Village Gate, and just you know becoming a part of that scene. We lucked out. John Medeski and I moved into the East Village back in like 1991, and you couldn't walk down the street without seeing people you know and eating at restaurants with them, and all the clubs were nearby, so we'd all play in each other's bands, go see each other, support each other, judge each other, learn from each other, you know, like any great art scene. And so I just was immersed in that immediately, and that's what Modesky Martin Wood was quickly born in that scene. Let's get to 2001 when your brother Oliver sat in with you. You said the way he played felt like I was looking into a mirror and listening to myself. That must have been pretty amazing. It was surreal because I recognized his musical instincts as as a family trait. It was a blood thing. There was something about his instincts that it reminded me of myself. So I knew that we had a, a strong musical connection in the same way that I had with the two guys in, in Medeski, Martin, and Wood that had grown over time, even though we always had a good chemistry. But with my brother, it was like immediate, that instant recognition of something familiar. Sweet Maria, I never knew what I was missing. In some ways, the genres don't cross. Were you a little suspect to... How am I going to be performing with this Southern uh, musician and I'm this Northeast jazz guy? Actually, you know, 80 to 90% of our influences are exactly the same. And for the, all the musicians he was involved with and the guys in Modesky, Martin, and Wood, we all love the same stuff. For me, coming from this sort of New York jazz world, even though it's so much more than that what we did, but... I, you know, ultimately I feel like starting a band with my brother and putting what I do into the context of a lyric-driven songwriting kind of group was an interesting thing to do, more interesting for me than making a jazz record. You know, I kind of felt like the world doesn't need that, but maybe what the world needs is to blend these two universes together and see what comes out of it. What did it mean a couple of years into the Wood Brothers with you and Oliver to add a drum, a drummer? It's been a slow, steady journey for us. Um, we call it our slow rise to the middle, but it did start to grow and the venue started to get bigger and it just kind of made sense to, to flesh out the sound. Your songwriting gets affected by the kind of venues you're playing. So when, th when things get bigger, you can't help but write a song and picture, or at least the arrangement of a song is affected by what it's gonna be like to play it in the kind of places that you happen to be playing. Well, I've seen you in a sadness. And we were always implying all the rhythm that a drummer would do 
We always liked the idea of a third vocalist, you know, three-part harmony is just it's nothing like it. Next thing back at the sun. So when we found Jono, it was this perfect mix of things because he's a great drummer. He's also a fantastic keyboard player, piano player. So he could play melodica or any kind of keyboard, piano. He can play drums and keyboards at the same time. Like, he's kind of physically very uh, <laughs> dexterous. And he's also a very good singer. The other thing that he does that was actually a big thing is he plays this thing called the shatar, which is this percussion instrument. It's a crappy guitar that he turned into this beatbox kind of percussion instrument. The great thing about it is it allows us to play unplugged or very acoustic and stripped down with it, but still have a beat. And it's not the kind of beat that you would hear from sort of a ethnic, you know, Brazilian or African kind of instrument. It sounds very American beatbox-like. You've said that when you were younger, you were more on edge and insecure and crazy. Your ego hasn't been beaten down yet. In some ways, you've mellowed. Absolutely. You, you start taking all your fears and insecurities, your anxieties, less serious. It doesn't mean that they disappear, but you just don't embody them as much. You don't, you don't really take them as seriously. And I think the longer that you're on the planet, you start to realize that the ups and downs of life happen no matter what you do. That's not. That's really not in, in your control. And what always fascinates me is I look at the, our calendar. Some days on paper look like it's going to be a fun day, and some days you think are going to be a challenging day. And it, sometimes it's just the opposite. That day on paper that looks like it's going to be a nightmare, for whatever reason, you have a blast. So you start to give up trying to predict what what's going to be miserable, what's going to be fun, and just kind of go with it. And that's different from being in the 20s and 30s. Were you trying to more control your career or control success? Yeah, control, I don't know. You just you just tend, I think when you're younger, you tend to take things more seriously. Yourself and things that happen to you, you can take things personally that maybe you shouldn't. Let's get to some music. Ways Not to Lose, considered a stunning studio album debut, an unexpected triumph, says Paste Magazine. Was it expected? Well, you know, who produced it was John Modeski, and we didn't expect anything. I'll say the one funny kind of expectation maybe behind it, if anything, was that after being in an instrumental band for years and always hearing from people like, oh, well, the real money's in vocal music, you know? <laughs> So I had this weird expectation that, oh, now we have songs with lyrics and, you know, choruses and verses. and Like, things are just going to be instantly successful. And, and, of course, it wasn't. I mean, it was we got some critical acclaim for that first record, but it's not like we were all of a sudden making a lot of money and playing big places. You know, it was a very slow, grueling journey of touring and just doing what you got to do to build up an audience in a band. Well, you certainly built it up. That was 2006. By 2011, you released Smoke Ring Halo. Tell me about the song when I was young. I just remember coming up with all these lines, just thinking along that theme. When I was young, this. When I was young, that. When I was young, the hardest work I had was waiting for tomorrow. All these ways that we reflect back to young and how we've changed. When I was young, I used to wake up early in the morning. I think musically, there's definitely some Ray Charles influence in there for the feel. 
I think what was fun about it is I'd come up with this idea for the song and, and some of the gist of it. And it was kind of early on, one of the lyrically, Oliver and I started getting good at collaborating. You know, it took a while. That's something that takes time. You had said the songs that you write should still have questions so a listener can interpret it in their own way. Does that make it harder for you as a songwriter to kind of write with holes in it? Not necessarily harder. You know, sometimes you, you write and then you take away until it has that balance of, of mystery, but it still gives you something, gives you an image or a feeling. But I always kind of use the analogy of, of like movies, you know, that movie that has a Hollywood ending where they kind of wrap up all the loose ends for you. It might be enjoyable to watch, but you tend to forget about it really quickly because there's nothing to figure out. But it's those movies that leave you hanging, all kinds of unanswered questions. Those are the ones you can't stop thinking about. Where did you learn to give space to leave an opening like that? I mean, from any art, any art where you just can't let go of it, you know, it still just sticks with you. Like, why is that? And it's usually because there's these open-ended aspects about it, you know, that it doesn't spoon-feed you all the answers or the message. It's just sort of leaves it open. It's a feeling. And I think it tends to make things more universal. And for some reason, humans, like, are obsessed with figuring things out. So if you give them something that they can't quite figure it out, They'll try. I almost feel like if I was talking to your mother, the poet, she would say the same thing. Do you think you you and Oliver got some of this songwriting approach from your mom? Not consciously, because I think when we were young, we didn't have the appreciation of what she was doing. I mean, her poetry was very dark in some ways because she was a refugee during World War II and had a lot of very heavy experiences that she processed through her poetry. So for us, it was always this strange otherworldly landscape that she would paint in her writing that now as I'm older I, I can read back and actually feel what she was feeling and understand what she was getting across with her poetry but we were always surrounded with amazing books and literature and and if nothing else in a reverence for writing you had a couple of albums in just a very short period of time it must have been pretty busy I know two of them were live but then you came out in 2013 with the muse and that really dealt with loneliness, lonesomeness, autobiographical at all? Absolutely. As I drown out the voices that are keeping me down There's a muse all alone on the other side of town On the cover of the muse, we, we had this picture, an artistic impression of, of Medusa. Most classic pictures of her are with this big scary face or something. You know, you're supposed to be afraid. But we just had this melancholy, beautiful face and then a bunch of snake hair. But the idea really behind that is that some things that inspire us, the muses in our life that inspire us to create something, it's not just beauty or happy things. It's often things, dark things, uh, sad moments, you know, loneliness. Those are the feelings that are behind a lot of great songs. Two years later, you came out with Paradise, another album about longing, and you've said about desire. How so? I think one of the things that we were expressing in some of those songs was, yeah, that desire in a lot of spiritual teaching is sort of considered the thing that you have to get rid of to really, you know, find some sort of enlightenment. I can't live without desire. And so I think maybe that's a misunderstanding of the real message that actually it's not that you have to get rid of it. You just have to accept it. It's just part of life. Like desiring, like what if we didn't desire? Would we get up in the morning? Would we, you know, desire has positive aspects. It always gets a bad rap. <laughs> it gives you motivation, doesn't it? Yeah. And I also just think it's part of being human. So it's not something you can get rid of. And then if you do want to get rid of it, then you're desiring not to desire. So you're kind of 
stuck in a circle. Well, you weren't stuck when you went to the barn. What was it like for you and Oliver and Jono to go to the barn to perform a live album? You know, I used to live about 15 minutes from the barn, and the amazing thing about it, so close to home, and yet when I'm in the barn, and especially the moments that I had hanging out with Levon, I felt like I was in this very far, far away place, you know, in some weird uh, parallel universe in the deep south somewhere. And, and then I'd drive home, and I'd be home in 15 minutes. It was so surreal. And everyone who lived around there had this irreverence for the barn, and, and uh, it was kind of like this little church of music out in the woods. By the time we finally recorded the live record there, you know, we'd been there quite a bit. We'd been part of the Rambles. Uh, that Levon had. So we'll send this one out to Levon. It kind of felt like home, but also like this special place, you know, like going to church or something, I guess. So we were comfortable enough being there that I think we were able to really let our hair down and just kind of have a wild, fun night that we were able to capture. Help us out. Where have you gone? It was a rocking night, and the album is just exciting. One Drop of Truth. Tell me about the impetus for this album. There's a lot of water imagery. There's a lot of hurricane references and storms on this record. But of course, a lot of those images are metaphors for these flood things that happen in our lives. I think big changes in your life, your life feel like, like it feels like when you, when you have a flood. You know, and it, and I know people who have flood dreams when big shifts in their lives happen. There's something that's always been a metaphor with water and your unconscious and all the things that are kind of happening just under the surface. But while you're talking about a metaphor for water, the album's name, One Drop of Truth, we are in an age of truth, real news, fake news, yeah. debating facts. So that also is kind of um, figuratively pretty appropriate in 2018. It is. It's the same thing for in a person's individual life when things are chaotic and tumultuous and within all that chaos, you know, like if you feel like you're almost trying to walk through a hurricane, you're looking for some guiding light, some truth, something to hold on to, you know, to help guide you. And so that can be as a country, I <laughs> feel that way, or it can be just in your individual life, uh, some crazy things or big shifts are happening. So that's kind of what that song's about. Well, let's talk about another song, Happiness Jones. The, the video is something. You do a lot of amazing work on this. You're Gene Kelly with rubber legs on ice in this video. All of my wisdom came. How many takes did you have to do for that video? Not a lot, but enough to get me really exhausted. Yeah, I was not in good enough shape to do a whole day of shooting. You have to be in really good shape to, to dance all day. And, you know, I do some dancing during the show, but it's these little bits and pieces. It's so weird how the dancing thing developed. It was never a planned thing. It's just something that organically started happening little by little over the years. I always loved moving to music. I never considered myself any kind of dancer. I've never trained, but I just, just like to move. I wonder how you take this comment by a critic who is really respectful of the group, but said that the siblings have seemingly become tighter and more focused as their professional liaison has matured. It takes a long time to integrate styles, writing, our experiences as professional musicians have been very different. And with that was the part that was exciting. But it did take 
time for for those two worlds to really integrate and to find our voice as a band that takes time one of the people who you've come to respect more was tom petty perhaps over the years you really didn't appreciate petty early on but what happened upon his death what was the feelings that you had then well i wouldn't say we didn't appreciate him yeah we didn't appreciate him enough it's true because we took him for granted we grew up with tom petty he was just part of the fabric of the music world you know soundtrack of our childhood kind of thing and it was bonnaroo 2000 was it six that we we saw him my brother and i were playing bonnaroo and tom petty was one of the headliners and we went and saw the show and we realized how much of an influence he was that night we never took him for granted again after that because we knew every song and it was a very nostalgic night stevie nicks was there sitting in and the sound was incredible and they were having a great night you could tell they were just on so after that day we realized that we were huge tom petty fans and respected him and his music and then of course i just dove deeper into his whole career and catalog and the will traveling wilburys and just everything and then the documentary came out which is incredible one of the ways to chart the growth of the wood brothers is the kind of venues that you play in and in the last year the Fillmore, you're heading to first avenue in minneapolis and you're headlining the ryman for the first time that's got to be a thrill it's great. It's a big thrill. You know, and it's interesting in my personal career, because with Modesky Martin Wood, of course, I've played all these places before. And then with my brother, we had to start right back playing the smallest little clubs and building it again. So we kind of got back to this point now with a very different band. And, and it is exciting. It's fun. And it's nice this time around that uh, it doesn't feel so new. It's, it's now it feels more like home to be in these places. Do you remember the most embarrassing moment in your career or the scariest moment in your career? Not this fall, but the last fall. It was a show that got canceled uh, because of a hurricane that was happening. Canceled show somewhere on the coast. I can't remember if it was North or South Carolina. And we somehow got this pickup gig last minute in Augusta, Georgia. And we ended up playing this crazy restaurant bar and these guys were so generous and treated us like kings and set up and all these people came and knew every lyric and I couldn't believe it you know but they were just killing us with kindness and there's lots of beers being passed to us but that night something happened to my gut like something went wrong (laughs) and I didn't know what it was and I couldn't sleep all night ended up going to some emergency clinic I was weak and dehydrated and and got misdiagnosed and thank god our next show was in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, who had this amazing gastrointestinal clinic. And it turns out, by the time I got there, I was a complete mess, and my blood was black. I was so dehydrated. And I had this intestinal, what they called an intestinal blockage. The thing that was scary about it was that in Augusta, they'd misdiagnosed me. If it had gone on too long, you can die. And it's not like it's that hard to operate and fix a situation like that, but if you don't fix it, you know, you, you will die. So that was a very strange thing that happened but thank god i ended up in charleston and the tour had to be canceled but just had great doctors and and all it was was some scar tissue from when i had my appendix out when i was a kid that's all it was but the scar tissue had grown in such a way that it started to block like part of my intestine so it was a pretty easy operation once they did it but we didn't know that going into it they're like well there's a chance you might end up with this colostomy bag on the outside of your body and you know you just don't know what could go wrong until they get in there but Thank God it went smooth. Thank God. Thank God. <laughs> What's it 
it like up on stage when a jam goes out of control? Oh, it's the best. I mean, ultimately, you don't want to feel like you're in control. That it's just, you're, it's almost like you're just watching it happen. And you're just a part of something that has a life of its own. That, that's the best feeling. That that's kind of gives you that feeling of transcendence and uh, sort of a love and connection with the people you're playing with and appreciation for all the sounds that they're making and the, the ways they're reacting to the music. And it's kind of like something's telling you what to play. That's what's exciting about it. it. You start to feel that, you know, cliche thing of like you're um, channeling something or you're just, you're just a vessel, you know, but it really feels like that. It feels like the next note is obvious and so obvious that it should, this should happen and then this should happen. And you don't know why you know, but you just know. It's amazing. That sounds amazing. Chris Wood, thanks very much. All right, thank you. The Wood Brothers are all about roots and timing. They feel lucky to have taken different paths and becoming seasoned musicians while apart. Well, that does it for this episode of the tour. I hope you liked our conversation. Go ahead and share it with your friends and followers and do me a favor, write a review. It'll help more people find us. Thanks for listening to the tour. This episode has been brought to you by Canova Communications, leaders in creating multi-platform content. Visit canovacommunications.com. The tour is also part of the Osiris family of podcasts, connecting you to music, artists, and culture. Hear it all at osirispod.com. And for music news, check out our partner, Relics Magazine, at relics.com. I'm your host, Ted Canova. Remember, music makes it all better. See you next time. And you're up there flying And you miss those loving arms It isn't so far away The sweet lullaby 
when you miss the loving eyes. Osiris.